message in a series on 2 Kings, entitled the series Jesus and the End of Israel, and today we'll see that Jesus restores us from death to life. We pray with me as we begin. We thank you, Almighty God, for this gathering, this time together with one another and with you, praising that you are here to guide us, to comfort and direct us, to renew us. We praise you for your word, for the life that we find in it. We pray that you would meet us through your word, and then meet us at your table, and that we would leave here in the power of the Holy Spirit, having encountered you and been transformed by you. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Twenty-five years ago, Pope John Paul II described Western society as a culture of death. Particularly, uh, he did so because of widespread support for abortion, legalized abortion, and for euthanasia. The pro-life movement ever since then has uh, used this phrase, the culture of death expression. If you're on the res listserv, you may have seen a message this past week about um, uh, a, a movement that's happening around the world called 40 Days for Life. And this is an annual campaign of prayer and activism whose mission is, quote, to turn hearts and minds from a culture of death to a culture of life, thus bringing an end to abortion. This is a great mission. I'm all for this. I hope that they succeed. I hope God hears and answers their prayers and uh, they are successful in this. But even if they do, it won't be the end of the culture of death. Even if our society were to become universally opposed to abortion and pro-life legislation were to become the law of the land, the culture of death would remain. And that's because sadly the problem runs so much deeper. One of the great ironies of Western culture is our willful corporate ignorance regarding the inevitability of death. Whenever death claims someone near us, we work together to brush it under the rug. We contain and sterilize the bloody mess, smother the crisis in platitudes, and then do everything we can to forget about what just happened and get back to keeping death out of sight. We spend our entire lives doing this, doing everything we can to erase death from consciousness especially by remaining uh, ever-focused on activity and fitness and vitality and virility and youthfulness and so on. All of this, says Cambridge theologian Catherine Pickstock, is a kind of modern necrophilia. How so? We have modern necrophilia in that we love what has to die and only can die. Don't think about the inevitable. Now is all we've got. Peter Lightheart agrees. Peter Lightheart, the uh, biblical theologian, agrees and says that just as our secular vices, like abortion and fostered a culture of death, so also have our secular virtues. In Western society, this willful ignorance, this practiced avoidance of the topic of death is one of our highest virtues. So even though we are surrounded by the evidence of death and decay, we wear blinders to keep from having to see it, and we pat one another on the back, congratulating 
each other for wearing these blinders and ignoring the evidence. So the culture of death, unfortunately, is, is much more pervasive and insidious than we ever realized. Abortion and euthanasia merely presenting symptoms of a deeper disease. Abortion advocates um, sometimes will argue that Jesus never said a word about abortion, and so therefore neither should we. It's a ridiculous argument. It ignores the historical record of the first century. Uh, Judaism was universally opposed to abortion because abortion was a practice of the wicked Gentiles. And Jesus, of course, was Jewish, and Jesus came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. So it's absurd to suggest that Jesus sided with the Gentiles in somehow supporting abortion. But even if we didn't know the evidence, even if we didn't have any other records from the first century, we would have the Gospels, and we have much more important evidence in the Gospels, because what we find there is that Jesus spent his entire life in ministry as a kind of blitzkrieg against the culture of death. Jesus announced the inbreaking of God's kingdom. He was proclaiming that death's days are numbered. And Jesus didn't just proclaim this. He went out and acted it, uh, casting out deadly spirits, healing the sick, and raising the dead. We just had a gospel lesson that was read to us from Luke chapter 7, one of a number of different stories that tell of Jesus raising the dead. Um, we find these stories... Uh, to be evidence of Jesus' comprehensive uh, pro-life mission. Going so much further than what we typically think of as being pro-life. I mean, think of what happened when Jesus uh, touched someone who was unclean, which is to say someone who had been contaminated, uh, uh, religiously or ritually contaminated by death. Think of what would happen when Jesus would touch that person. As we heard in the Gospel lesson, Jesus reaches out and touches the beard. And the beard, is, I'm not talking about the beard, but the beard, the uh, thing that was carrying the dead body. Uh, the beard does not contaminate Jesus. But in fact, instead of that corruption coming into Jesus, the life of Jesus goes out and raises this man uh, from death to life. This continued throughout Jesus' ministry. Uh, wherever he went, whatever he did, he wasn't contaminated. But in fact, uh, life flowed out from him everywhere he went. And it, it climaxed in his death uh, on the cross at Golgotha, the place of the skull. Uh, that was where the culture of death took one final stand against him, nailing him to the cross. But death could not hold him. Instead of the contagion of death conquering him, Jesus conquered death. And his resurrection became, became the turning point of history. The first fruits of a global harvest, as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and we heard in our New Testament lesson, from that first Easter, a countercultural movement began. And it started to grow and flourish everywhere around the world. The culture of death would not have the last word. Kingdom of life began advancing out from that resurrection moment on Easter. And it continues to this day as King Jesus is subduing all his enemies under his feet, the last of them being death itself. Life will triumph over death, 
because Jesus has already won the victory. In Elisha's day, the people of Israel should have known that the Lord, and only the Lord, could rescue them from the culture of death. The culture of death was consuming all of the nations around them. Israel should have known that that was not the way to go. They wouldn't have known the details about Jesus yet, but they could have looked back in their history and they could have remembered the Abraham story and remembered Jehovah Jireh, the God who provided a ram so that Abraham's son Isaac would be saved. They could have remembered how the Lord provided uh, the Passover lamb as he rescued the Israelites from Egypt, from slavery there rescuing them from death and destruction to himself for the life of the world. But Israel forgot these things in the land of Canaan, in the land of promise, in, in uh, all of the blessings of being there. They forgot these things. And so the contagion of the culture of death that surrounded them started to creep into their land and their people and spread throughout Israel so that only a tiny remnant remained. And these stories that we're reading from 2 Kings about Elisha right now are remnant stories describing how a few remaining believers clung to life in the Lord while the culture of death was gobbling up almost every living thing around them. For people living in Israel at that time, uh, King Ahab's idolatry had become so contagious. It was just taking over everything. And so the religious leaders of that day had fully succumbed to it. They had rejected the Lord and embraced false gods. So only this remnant remained who embraced the culture of life that God had given to their ancestors. And they were making do with duct tape and paper clips. They were just pulling uh, some sort of makeshift way together to follow the Lord. What we find in these stories that we're reading is that Elisha is a minister to the remnant. And he's a minister sent out as an ambassador of life in a culture of death. Wherever Elisha goes, not only is he salt, but he's also light. Like salt on rotting meat, he acts as a preservative, preventing the decay of the culture of death. Like light in the darkness, he's also spreading God's life out to others, enabling the remnant to survive. So, Christians read the Elisha stories not to be entertained by some comic book hero, but in order to be inspired for how we ought to live. Jesus calls his disciples to be salt and light within this culture of death. Like Elisha, we are sent out into it as ambassadors of life. Last Sunday, we looked at the first story in 2 Kings chapter 4, and you can turn there in the Bible. In the Church Bible, it's on page 266, 2 Kings chapter 4, we looked at the first seven verses in which Elisha came to the rescue of a poor woman uh, among the remnant. Her husband had died, she couldn't pay the bills, and so her children were being sold into slavery. Death had infiltrated the living, and was already well on its way to consuming her entire family. Elisha came to this woman as an ambassador of life. Through his presence, the impossible became possible, and God miraculously provided for the woman in such a way that she was able to pay off her debts and rescue the family from destruction. 
Now we come to this second story in 2 Kings chapter 4, and it's a much, much longer story, a story that happens in two parts. We read the second part uh, tonight. Let me summarize for you what happens in part one. In part one, uh, Elisha gets a wealthy patron, and he blesses that woman uh, with a son. Remnant ministry is expensive. Elisha had helped this poor widow uh, pay off her bills. But how was Elisha going to fund his own ministry? How was he going to pay for his own food and transportation and housing? Uh, Shunem, the place where this woman lived, was about halfway between the Jordan River and Mount Carmel. And Elisha used to make the journey somewhat regularly. And one day as he was making this journey, this woman, the Shunammite woman that's in this story, comes out and uh, she, she's a part of the remnant. And so she invites Elisha home to dinner. And this is a great blessing to Elisha. And so every time he passes through from that time forward, he begins to have supper with this woman and her husband uh, and all on their wealthy estate. And over time, the woman decided that she would build an apartment for Elisha, an Airbnb on the roof, so that he could stay up there whenever he visited. And if you had read those verses, we skipped those verses tonight, but if we had read them, um, you would have noted, as, as uh, oftentimes you, in a film when you're watching it, and uh, things slow down and really focus on something, you would have noted that the narrator is really focused on the furnishings in this Airbnb. Um, if, you're, if you're furnishing your own Airbnb today, you know what has to go into it. There are a number of essentials. You have to uh, give it lots of extra pillows, right? You have to have little box of gourmet teas and your tea kettle. You have to have that live, laugh, love sign. Uh, maybe you have to note where the kitchen is by a big sign that says eat. Uh, these things are essential for an Airbnb. In, um, in, in this place, uh, in this story, Elisha's Airbnb is furnished with a bed, of course, but there are also a number of things that are mentioned that seem a little bit out of place. If, if the Airbnb that you uh, constructed here in Washington also had a pulpit and pews, maybe a baptismal font, you might say, hmm, that's a little bit strange. And that's exactly what's going on here with, with this place that the lady has furnished for Elisha. It's, there's a bed there, but there's also this table and a throne, and um, there's uh, also a lampstand. And these are words that are used to describe the temple. And what we find that's happening in, in the story here is it's this MacGyvering of religion in a place where all of the institutions have gone over to the enemy. All of the institutions have embraced the culture of death. And so whatever is left, it's just this remnant. And they're literally pulling together their, their pursuit of the Lord with duct tape and paper. They're, they're figuring it out, and wherever they can, they're going to build a temple. They build a temple upstairs in the Airbnb. It's Elisha's bed, and it's also where they gather for worship. Um, you can't be picky in remnant ministry, as we're finding out. This is why we're having this, these uh, fundraisers, you know, trying to raise money to have our own building. And we just have to make do uh, with whatever the Lord provides, and that's what's going on in this story. Shunammite's provision, nevertheless, was a, uh, a very generous provision, and Elisha was, was 
greatly blessed by what she provided for him. And so he asked how he might be a blessing to her. And she said to him, uh, you know what, I've got everything I need. I'm fine, I live among my own people, and they take care of everything. It wasn't true. What's the, the one gift that you give to the person who has everything? In this case, this woman wanted a son. She wanted an heir. She was this close to the same problem that we encountered in the beginning of the chapter. Uh, just as the beginning of the chapter, the, the lady's husband had died, um, and suddenly there was a crisis. In this case, uh, here's this Shunammite woman. Her husband is advanced in years, but she doesn't have a son, no heir. She could have been in big trouble very soon. And so Elisha's servant, the uh, comic relief character throughout these stories, he says, you know, she might need a baby. And Elisha says to her, um, at this season, about this time next year, you will embrace a son, chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrew here is very interesting. It says something, it only occurs one other place in the Old Testament. It says, when time revives, you will have a son. It's the same expression that the Lord used in telling Sarah, of Sarah and Abraham, that she also would have a son. And the stories are linked, uh, because in both cases, the woman reacts kind of incredulously in the story, and then what happens over time is that a miracle baby is born, and then that miracle baby comes very close to death. In this story, the story of the Shunammite woman, uh, where we picked up reading tonight, is that after some years, after the boy was born, the boy had grown a little bit, after some years he goes out to see his father out in the field, he gets a terrible headache, and he ends up a few hours later dying in his mother's lap. That's in verses 18 to 20, if you want to follow along. And so she took her dead son to the holiest place that she had access to, which was upstairs in the Airbnb, and she lay him down on Elisha's bed. And then she went back to her husband, and she asked for the keys to the car so that she could go and find this ambassador of life. She was on a mission to go and find him. When her husband said, what's this all about? She said, all is well. And I don't think that she was, um, she was trying to deceive her husband. I don't think that she was trying to sweep this situation under the rug. What I think was going on is she was a desperate mom. She was in crisis, and she knew that she had a, a singular mission, which was to find Elisha, to find this ambassador of life and to get him on this right now. That was her mission. She was part of the remnant. She believed in resurrection life. She knew that the Lord could make all things new. And so she set out to find God's ambassador of life. She rode off to Mount Carmel, about 15 miles to the west. When Elisha saw her coming, he knew something was up. And he sent his servant out to, to meet her, and once again she said to the servant, all is well, because she wouldn't be trifled with him. She was going right to the source. She was going right to Elisha. And when she got to him, she laid hold of his feet, grabbed hold of him, as if, uh, like in the story of Jacob wrestling with God, you know, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. She grabbed hold of his feet. Elisha, for his part, didn't know what was going on. He didn't know what had happened. But when she, when she said to him, did I even ask you for a son? He knew it was about the baby. 
And when she said, are you mocking me? Are you trying to crush me? He, he knew that in this gift of a son, and now in the death of a son, that all of her hopes were being dashed. All of her hopes of being a part of this ongoing remnant of life in a culture of death were being crushed. And Elisha knew that it, that it was time for action to get involved, to come to the rescue uh, of this woman so that her story would be like Abraham's story. So that her story would be a story of uh, a life that's spared. And the remnant continues. Unless God intervened, her family would be lost from the remnant. So immediately, Elisha dispatched his servant to run to the boy with his staff and, and try it. Lay the staff on him and see what happens. This had maybe worked for Moses back in the day. Why not? Let's try that. But the woman knew it wasn't going to work. She knew better. She knew what she needed. She needed Elisha. She would not let him go until he came with her. She needed God's ambassador to come and be salt and light back in her home. He had to come and reverse the curse of death that had claimed the boy. So Elisha consented. He went with her back and finding the boy up on his bed, up in the Airbnb, he, he stretched out himself over the boy like salt covering rotting meat. And the death didn't contaminate him. And he breathed life the breath of God back into the little boy. And the lad sneezed for seven times. Had to happen seven times. And then he opened his eyes. He'd come back to life. What a great story, right? What a crazy story. What does it mean? What are we to do with it? Elisha was God's ambassador of life to the Shunammite woman and to the remnant. He was, he was uh, an ambassador of life in really two ways to her. First of all, he brought new life to her in enabling her to conceive and give birth to this boy. And then years later, when her son became ill and died, he brought resurrection life to the boy and restored him to his mother and to the remnant. The Lord could have done all of this without Elisha, right? He could, have, he could have spoken a word, and all of this would have happened. But he chose to use an ambassador of life, presumably because he wanted the woman to know which god did this, so she wouldn't think that it was one of the fertility gods from the culture of death. So that she would know it was the god of Abraham that had given her this son, the god of Abraham that had brought him back to life. Not even Elisha's staff could be used to work the miracle. It had to be him in the flesh. The Lord's ambassador had to come in person to be salt and light. When the idea of our congregation was first, uh, first bubbling up about 20 years ago, the uh, Episcopal Bishop of Washington preached an Easter sermon at the National Cathedral. Uh, in which it's reported that he mocked traditional Christian beliefs about the resurrection. Despite having this very high office uh, in the church, he embraced the culture of death, and he became 
an ambassador of this culture of death within the church. His Eastern message affirmed um, what everybody already knows, which is to say that dead people stay dead, including Jesus. When Jesus was crucified, he really died, and he never rose again. So instead of believing an antiquated and creepy old ghost story about a bloody corpse coming back to life, we should do what enlightened people do, which is to sweep death under the rug and not talk about it. What we ought to celebrate on Easter instead is how Jesus' love and tolerance lives on in us today. And that's how we, too, can live on magically forever. What do we have to offer a world that is being consumed by a culture of death? It's certainly not the embrace of the culture of death. In denying the resurrection of Jesus, the Episcopal Bishop of Washington went AWOL. He abandoned his commission as an ambassador of life. He was to be salt on the rotting flesh of our world, preserving it from the culture of death. He was to be light in the darkness, proclaiming the good news of eternal life through Jesus, our risen Lord. Instead, he chose to preach death and spread gangrene within the living flesh of the church. And I'm sorry to say that he died not very long after that. And as far as we know, he died having never repented for this. When our congregation started out, kind of in the wake of this, we named it the Church of the Resurrection, and we named it the Church of the Resurrection because of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 15 about Jesus' bodily resurrection. Chapter 15, verse 14 says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Again, in verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have died. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, which is what the Bishop of Washington was preaching, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So we are the church of the resurrection because we believe that Jesus' bloody corpse came back to life after three days in the grave. And now he reigns, and his kingdom will never end. We are ambassadors of resurrection life. We have a message to share with the world that Jesus says from his throne, Behold, I'm making all things new, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for all those former things will have passed away. To say that our beliefs are countercultural is a massive understatement, isn't it? When the Bishop of Washington mocked historic Christian beliefs, he hadn't somehow gone rogue. He was simply giving voice to what the majority of the clergy in the Episcopal Church by that time already believed. And of course, the same thing has happened in many other churches and denominations throughout the West over the past couple of centuries. Not only is the resurrection of the dead utterly ridiculous out in the secular world, but also to an ever-increasing number of people who identify as Christians within the church, both Catholic and Protestant, both mainline and evangelical. Now, how has this happened? The culture of death is infectious. It spreads into living things like gangrene, a 
creeping necrosis that digests living flesh when left unchecked. The living tissue of the church believes that Jesus rose from the dead, because like Paul said, it is essential, it's foundational to the church. Beyond the church, the culture of death is rotting the flesh of the world. So Christians today, just like those of the early church, have a job to do. Jesus commissioned us to be salt, preserving the world from decay. Instead, many have lost their saltiness. The decay has spread even into the church, so that we have leaders who say that the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised, and our faith is futile. And increasingly, the church in the West manifests this decay as we no longer look to Jesus for resurrection life, but instead we try to live it up now as best we can, before it's too late. Instead of missional living as ambassadors of the resurrection, we succumb to the culture of death. Even though we may remain opposed politically to abortion and euthanasia, if we abandon our calling as ambassadors of life and instead spend our time and money chasing the American dream, we are not pro-life. We've given up hope in the God of life. We've plugged back into the matrix just like the Episcopal Bishop of Washington did. Many of you have been working hard to reach some goal in your life. Maybe you have just reached it. Maybe you're about to be there. You're starting to think about what's next. Maybe you've finished a project or a degree. You've finished an album or a great concert here last night. Maybe you uh, finally made partner at work. Maybe some, something in your life. Maybe you just got married or just had a baby. In any case, you find that having arrived at this goal, now you're asking, what's next? Where am I headed next in my life? Let me tell you why we are gathered here today. We are gathered here today as a deeply countercultural movement to remember and reaffirm the turning point of history, what should be the most important thing in our lives. When Jesus overcame death, after his resurrection, Christianity spread like wildfire throughout a very similar culture of death because the early Christians really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, and that they would too. They became ambassadors of resurrection life, carrying it out into the world to share it with others. They were so certain that Jesus had risen that they would risk persecution to get together and worship him every Sunday, to come around that table, to hear from his word, and to be fed by the Lord. They wanted to commune with one another and with them, and they were willing to risk their lives to do it. And if they were arrested, they were willing to be martyred and die for their beliefs. Why? Because they knew that Jesus would raise them from the dead. We are inheritors of this countercultural movement, believing the same things, and called to proclaim the same message to the culture of death that surrounds us. Looking for what's next in your life? How about this countercultural mission? It's not just pagan co-workers who need us to be ambassadors of life. It's not just Episcopalians who've given up hope 
in the God of life and plugged back into the matrix. The pernicious, insidious culture of death is spreading like gangrene within the living flesh, even of the church of Jesus Christ. We need to be salt and light for one another, to fight back against the encroachment and remind one another of the reason why we're here. What do we have to offer a world and a church that is being consumed by the culture of death? Only Jesus Christ the Lord. In fact, he has been raised from the dead. And now, all over the world, his kingdom is advancing as he subdues every enemy under his feet the last of these being death. I invite you to pray with me as we turn to you, Lord, and ask that 